just a moment ago, and then as he started praying for me, that in all my preparations, I would have been holy, happy, and humble. And uh, I had to keep praying, because I don't think in all my preparations this week, I've been either holy, happy, or humble consistently, but we do have the pleasure of hearing from God's word, and it's why we gather, to receive the grace of his word, and to know that in this word, the God of the universe has spoken to us. And so let's pray that God would bless the preaching of his word one more time. God, we pray and we're grateful for this chance to gather. Grateful again for the chance to receive your grace, to be beneficiaries of it, to sit underneath it, to to be able to hear your word. How many pray for some word from you and yet they leave your word closed by their side? And so God, we pray even now that as we open your word, you might reveal wonderful things to us in your law, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, all right, for centuries, men and women have sought to establish the kingdom of God on earth. So from Muslim conquests under Muhammad to the infamous crusades of the Catholic Church that followed, under the auspices of divine sanction, wars have been waged, cities have been sacked, civilians have been starved and slaughtered, It was actually 832 years ago this week that the famed Richard the Lionheart fought the feared Saladin of the Muslim armies in an attempt to what? To reclaim Jerusalem and establish the kingdom of God on earth. All under that battle cry of, right, God wills it. Now, not all attempts to establish the kingdom of God on earth have been violent So the pilgrims fled religious persecution and came here to America, to Massachusetts, in order to what? To establish a city on a hill, a kind of kingdom of God here on earth. And yet that's not just how all conceive of the kingdom of God, but it is how many do. The kingdom is something what? It's something we usher in. The kingdom is something that we build. The kingdom is something we create something that God himself calls us to accomplish. And for many, that kingdom is built how? By power, by cunning, by might. Now for others, it's built by partnering with God and redeeming social structures, whether or not it's politics, academics, or economics. But friends, is that how we're to think about the kingdom of God? How would you recognize it if it were to appear? How would you spot it? What is it like? Well, these are the very kinds of questions I want us to be thinking about as we return this morning to our study in 2 Samuel, the book of 2 Samuel. We're going to be in chapters 2 to 4 this morning, and I think you can find page 2 if you don't happen to have a Bible with you on page 255 of those red Bibles in the seat back before you. And if you're just joining us, 2 Samuel documents really the rise, the subsequent fall, and then the return of David the king. It's a period really that covers Israel at some of her best and also some of her worst. Now, chapter 1 last week, right, it, it recounted the death of Saul, Israel's first king, and David's own arch enemy. And with his death, the one man standing in the way of David and the kingdom, that one man is now gone. And chapters 2 to 4 really tell the story of how David goes from a fugitive in a foreign land to a man who's now ready to take the throne of all Israel. 
And I hope you were able to read the chapters this week. Recognize we provide those sermon cards for you over at Connecting Point so you can read ahead and benefit most from these messages. I mean, if you're going to sit and listen, you might as well read for a few minutes to prepare, right? And so hopefully you had a chance to do that. But in case you didn't, let me just give you a lay of the land because we do have three chapters. So if you would, just look down at your Bibles with me, chapter 2. And in chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, well, that sets up the tension of our passage. So David in 2.4 is anointed king of Judah down in the south. But then we read in 2.11 that Abner, the commander of Saul's armies up in the north, and all those northern tribes, well, he installs Saul's own son, Ishbosheth, as king. And so what do we have right at the outset? We've got a divided kingdom. We've got two kings and two houses, the house of David and the house of Saul that persists. And that tension really boils over in chapter 2, verse 12. And that tension runs all the way through really the rest of the section, but especially chapter 2. So Abner, we're going to see, the commander of Saul's, well, no, it's longer Saul's, but Ishbosheth's army. Abner is going to lead his men to Hebron. And Joab, who's the commander of David's army, well, he's going to meet him there at, at, uh, at Gibeon. And there's a, a contest, there's a, almost a tournament of sorts. And that contest turns deadly, and then it just breaks out into all-out war. And Abder's men are we going to read in, in chapter 2.18 and following. Abder's men are going to retreat, and, and Joab's brother Asahel will pursue uh, Abner. And in that pursuit, Asahel is going to be killed. Or now, a temporary truce is called in chapter 2, verse 27. And then in 3.1 we learn that that was really just the start, that one battle, that little vignette, was really just the start of a larger succession of battles uh, in which the house of David grows stronger and stronger. And while that is happening in the south, in the north, Abner, right, his, his influence is growing within the kingdom to the north, and yet there's a falling out between Abner and Ishbosheth in chapter 3, and in that falling out, Abner decides to defect. He's going to take all the northern tribes and all the armies. He's going to leave Ishbosheth, and he is going to join with David's army and see that David himself is installed as king over all of Israel. And so in chapter 3, verse 12, what does he do? He negotiates the terms. And then he calls, Abner does a secret meeting of all the elders of the northern tribes, and he convinces them to side with David. If he convinces the elders, he convinces the people. Everyone goes. Except when Joab, David's own commander, when he hears of this deal, Joab is furious. He wants Abner dead because of the death of his brother Asahel. And in chapter 4, um, well, well, what happens actually at the end of chapter, uh, at the end of chapter three, uh, Joab is going to secretly call Abner back and he's going to set a trap for him and then he's going to murder Abner. And so chapter three actually ends with David mourning Abner's death and David also cursing Joab. And so now Abner's dead. The feared king, uh, rather general of the north is gone. And now Ishbosheth, it's obvious this guy, his days are numbered. And in chapter 4, we read that two of his own sort of captains of sorts, they enter into his house in the middle of the day under the pretense of just hitting the kitchen, and they go into his house, they have a sack, they're like, yeah, we're going to get some grain, 
They go in and they murder him and they take his head and they put it in the sack and they bring it as this grisly trophy to David. And they expect some reward for David. And chapter 4 ends with their executions. And now every rival to the throne, gone. The path is now clear for David to take the throne in chapter 5. And so just note that these three chapters are full of what? They're full of battles and betrayals. They're full of deception and death. The kind of stuff, again, that TV miniseries are made of. And yet, if we look carefully, there's a whole lot more going on than simply the struggle for the throne. In the midst of it all, I think we're given in these three chapters a picture of what God's kingdom will be like. Where do we see it? What are the marks of it? That's what we're going to be thinking about. And there are going to be three lessons. And you know what? Just to keep you in suspense, to keep you engaged, right? I'm going to hold them off. You're just going to have to wait. and You're going to have to listen. Uh, and, uh, and I'll give them to you uh, as we go along. Okay, so the first thing I want us to see about the kingdom that I think these chapters reveal is that God's kingdom begins humbly. Firstly, I want us to see God's kingdom, it begins humbly. I think this covers really chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. So look with me back to chapter 2, verse 1. After this, that is the death and lamentation of Saul. After this, David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go up into any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, Go up. And David said, To which shall I go up? And he said to Hebron. So David went up there and his two wives also, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David brought up his men who were with him, everyone with his household, and they lived in the towns of Hebron. And the men of Judah came, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. All right, so just picture the scene for a moment. Saul's dead. No doubt the kingdom at this point is in disarray. And this is really David's chance, right? David can step in and he can fill the void. He can march his army right into Israel. He can take the throne. But notice David, again, doesn't do that, does he? He doesn't go to fill his army with new recruits and march on into Israel. David isn't here launching some kind of public relations campaign. And he, he's not granting interviews to all the major outlets. No, what does he do? Verse 1, he stops and the first thing we read is that he inquired of the Lord, shall I go up into any of the cities of Judah? So notice right there, David does what Saul would never do. He does what Saul would never do. Saul would always act first. And then he consult God almost as a kind of afterthought in case, in case something went wrong. Whereas David, what are we seeing? David is praying first. And he's entrusting whatever outcome to God. I wonder which of these two men might describe you. Just that right there. Which of them might describe you? Do you simply seek to seize the day and maybe consult God again as, as an afterthought? Or do you commit everything to the Lord in prayer first? Do you look to his word for guidance Trusting him to guide you, trusting him to lead you down whatever path he deems best for you. I wonder what big decisions are you facing, maybe this week, this month? 
How have you committed those to the Lord? How have you inquired of the Lord and sought the Lord in those decisions? Or again, are you prone to act like Saul, which is to sort of act first and wonder about it later? Well, no doubt the temptation for David just to act and take the kingdom, that would have been a great temptation. No doubt David had advisors in his ear, like, David, this is your chance, right? The kingdom right now, the kingdom is yours for the taking. But David doesn't do it, does he? No, David waits on God. David inquires of God. Again, we're seeing that David knows, he knows that God will give him the kingdom or he won't. Either God would make him king or he would never be king. Either way, again, David here is refusing to make himself king. He's not, as we thought of last week, he's not giving God's plans that gentle shove and nudge. Right? He's not doing that. No, he gives himself to prayer and then he rests in God's good purposes. I think David has much to teach us here, doesn't he? Now with God's guidance, David does go up to Hebron. And there are just two things to note about Hebron. First, Hebron was a, a city rich with history because there at Hebron was the burial sites for Abraham and Sarah, for Isaac and Rebekah, for Jacob and Leah. So significant in that regard, but also significant in a second way because it was a sanctuary city, which doesn't mean, right, it's a city sort of designated as a sanctuary as we might think of it today for illegal aliens, not that. No, it's a city where one who is accused of bloodshed but not yet found guilty in any way, they could flee to that city and avoid being sort of killed by another family member in revenge of whomever's life they may have taken, whether or not it was accidental, intentional, whatever it might be. These were cities of refuge, and that's what Hebron was. And now given that no doubt some in Israel probably harbored some suspicion about Saul's death and what part David may have played in all that, right? Hebron would have been a great place for David to be. And it's here, notice, that David is anointed king over Judah. Now, I trust at some point driving, maybe cross-country or just through the state, you've come across one of those historical markers, you know, on the side of a road. It might be a country road, and there's a little plaque, and it gives you a date, and it speaks to some event, something significant that happened there. Maybe it was a Civil War battle, or maybe it's the, the birthplace of a, of a president, whatever it might be. Well, right there in chapter 2, verse 4, that's one of those historical markers in our scriptures, because it's here for the very first time that Yahweh's king visibly rules on earth. And yet, no sooner has David taken the kingdom of Judah, well, he hasn't taken it. No sooner has it been given to him, we should say, that we read of a rival kingdom that takes shape down in verse 8. So look down with me to verse 8. But Abner, the son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, took Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahanim, and he made him king over Gilead and the Asherites and Jezreel and Ephraim and Benjamin and all Israel. Ishbosheth, Saul's son, was 40 years old when he began to reign over Israel, and he reigned two years, but the house of Judah followed David, and the time of David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. Okay, so we're introduced to Abner here in verse 8, and we probably ought to be asking, why in the world is Abner, Saul's top general, still alive? 
Wasn't it his job to protect Saul, to protect Jonathan, to protect the house? Back in chapter uh, 31 of 1 Samuel, it would seem so, but here he is. And notice he takes Saul's only remaining son, Ishbosheth, and he makes him king. Now notice we don't read of Abner consulting with the Lord. Abner does what we often do, right? He thinks and acts first in his own self-interest. That's what he does. And notice we read there's no coronation ceremony like David had where the people come and they celebrate him. Now what's the language we read? We read that Abner took Ishbosheth, brought him to Mahanim, and made him king. So just right there in those verbs, what are we learning? Ishbosheth is but a puppet king, right? Every, he's entirely passive. Everything is happening to him. Abner is the one moving the pieces on the checkboard, on the chessboard. But notice his kingdom. I mean, Ishbosheth may be a figurehead at best, but his kingdom is massive compared to David, right? He's kingdom over what? Over all, he's king over all Gilead, the Asherites, Jezreel, right? All the way down the line, the tribes. And notice there at the end, all Israel. He's king over all of that. Everything basically in the area except for David's little hamlet. So this is a large and imposing kingdom in contrast to David, who's tucked away up there in the hills of Judah, just again, this humble hamlet called Hebron. That's what David's got. And friend, I think even there, there's a lesson for us. Because we love things big, don't we? We like our big trucks and our big homes and our big yards. We like our big university and we like our football stadiums, right? Even bigger, but they would even play in them. That's a different story. Just tried to watch it on ESPN+. Plus. At any rate, we take pride, right? What are we here? We're the home of the biggest retailer in the world. And it's Perhaps no surprise that what? What do we like? We like our churches big. We like our budgets big. We like our baptismal numbers big. And if we have all that, what do we assume? We assume we're making a big impact. All of that impresses us. Friends, what did Jesus teach his disciples about the kingdom in Mark chapter 4? He said, what can we compare the kingdom of God? Or what parable can we use to describe it? It's like... An M1 tank. No, right? That's not, not what the parable says. It's not like an M1 tank. It's like what? It's like a mustard seed that when sown upon the soil is the smallest of all the seeds in the ground. And when sown, it comes up and grows taller than all the garden plants and produces large branches so that the birds of the sky can nest in its shade. A mustard seed, Jesus says. A seed so small you could miss it in the very palm of your hand. So small as to be inconsequential, even irrelevant. No doubt the disciples are like, come on Jesus, something more impressive than that. And yet from this seed would grow the largest plant in Palestine. And aren't we getting a glimpse of that right here in 2 Samuel 2? Aren't we getting a glimpse of it? The grand thing already present and the smallest of things, something that would one day grow and defy all expectations. You know, members of UBC, I think this is something we need to remember. Because the world often can appear pretty impressive, pretty grand. The, the world can have plenty of curb appeal. 
and it seems to be gaining popularity. And Christianity often seems, in contrast, to be in decline. And when we gather like this, you know, sometimes it may not honestly feel all that impressive. Right? We sing a little, we read a little, and then you listen to some Yahoo like me talk for too long about a book that everyone else mocks. And we do that, and then we leave, and that's it. And we might be tempted to think, what's the point? Why are we doing all this? Who cares? It might feel inconsequential, even irrelevant. But right here, we're being reminded that appearances can be deceiving. Appearances can be deceiving. We can never confuse size with significance. We don't think something small can be of much importance, but friends, that is the essence of Christianity. Because here we are seeing what? The kingdom of God in a mustard seed. God's kingdom begins humbly. But a second thing we learn, God's kingdom doesn't just begin humbly, but secondly, it advances despite opposition. God's kingdom advances despite opposition. And this really brings us to Abner and Joab, who are sort of the two rival generals. Think like Patton and Rommel in World War II or something, right? They, they are the rivals. And notice the opposition to David begins immediately. Because we pick up the story in chapter 2, verse 12, and what do we read? That Abner, the son of Ner, and the servants of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, went out from Mahanim to Gibeon. So Abner and his army are on the east side of the Jordan. They're going to cross the Jordan, they're going to march a long distance, and they're going to march all the way to the borders there of where David is around Hebron. Friends, that's a provocative move. That was an intentional move. And so what David's forces are, of course, they're forced to, to match suit. They're forced to meet him. Verse 13, and Joab, the son of Zariah, and the servants of David went out and met them, Abner and his men, at the pool of Gibeon. So right here around the pool of Gibeon, now we have two armies, right? The major armies, they're squared off against one another. And just so you know, Zariah was David's sister, Okay, which made Joab then David's nephew. So the, his, his main general is his nephew. Okay, and Abner suggests what? Verse 14, he suggests a kind of competition. Abner said to Joab, let the young men arise and compete before us. And Joab said, let them arise. Then they arose and passed over by number, 12 for Benjamin and Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and 12 of the servants of David. Now let's stop right there. We don't know exactly what this kind of competition, this proposal, we don't know exactly what it was like. But it's clearly meant to be representative in some time, in some way, because each side picks 12 to represent them. And presumably that stands for the 12 tribes of Israel. So perhaps this competition between the two sides was meant to reveal who was the rightful king over Israel. Is it going to be David or is it going to be Saul? You know, maybe it was like those medieval tournaments where, you know, knights were out there jousting, proving their prowess. We don't really know. Only like Hamlet and Laertes and Shakespeare's play, if you know, the, this, this, this game, so to speak, this tournament of sorts, it quickly turns deadly. Verse 16, we read that each caught his opponent by the head and thrust his sword into his opponent's side so they fell down together. 
Therefore, that place was called Helkath Hazarim, which is at Gibeon. It just means sort of field of the swords. And the battle was very fierce that day. And Abner and the men of Israel were beaten before the servants of David. Okay, so notice this competition, whatever it is, spills over into this fierce battle. And Israel, the northern tribes, are defeated by David's army. And so despite opposition, right out of the gate, what are we seeing? David's house is on the rise. His house is on the rise. Now the narrator is going to stop in verses 18 all the way through sort of verse 27. And the narrator is going to focus just on one vignette. Uh, of in the battle that's important for what happens in chapter 3. So as this battle unfolds and the tides turn against Abner and his men, they sound the retreat, they're starting to retreat, and yet Joab's brother Asahel pursues Abner. And what do we read? Verse 19 of chapter 2, he pursued Abner, and as he went, Asahel turned neither to the right nor to the left from following Abner. Now, turning neither to the right nor the left doesn't mean he just ran in one direction. It speaks instead not to direction, but to his determination. He was out for blood. He was out for Abner. And three times we find that same language just to to push that upon us. And if you read the narrative, it's clear Abner does not want to fight Asahel. And as Asahel closes in, because we're told he's swift, as he closes in, Abner warns him not just once, he warns him twice Do not fight me. Do not take up arms against me. Go against anyone else. Don't go against me. But verse 23, we read, But he, Asahel, refused to turn aside. Therefore Abner struck him in the stomach with the butt of his spear, so that the spear came out at his back. And he fell there and died where he was. And all who came to the place where Asahel had fallen and died stood still. Now, the narrator is telling us that with the use of the butt of the spear, Abner wasn't out for blood in the same way. Maybe to knock the wind out of him, maybe to disable him. Doesn't seem he was out to kill him. But you take Asahel's speed and you just take Abner's just brute strength. And it meant that however that went down, the butt end of that spear impaled Asahel. And now one of David's top fighters, right, Joab's own brother, lies limp on the field of battle, and it seems that dreaded spear of Saul lives on. Now the chase continues in earnest, and it's only when Abner and his men take their stand, the sort of final stand at the top of a hill, so now they have strategic advantage in the battle. It's there that Joab and his men and his other brother Abiathar, they come And Abner offers them a truce. Abner, who's got the strategic advantage, hoping cooler heads will prevail, and offers a truce. And we read that Joab accepted the truce. Now, we're not know if he was, we can't really tell if he was won over by the argument or if he just recognized this was a fool's errand. He couldn't fight up that hill. Abner had the advantage. Either way, both men part ways. But we read, uh, actually, we read back in 1 Samuel, how many men did David have? At about this time, he had like 600 men in his army, and that was it. Not a huge army, likely nothing to co- compared to what Abner would have commanded. And yet, as the scene settles and everyone takes score, we're told in verse 30 that only 19 of David's servants lay slain, whereas the losses for Abner's men were 360. 
So if you take out the 12 that had that initial sort of uh, battle, friends, that's a ratio of 44 to 1. That is just a complete rout for David's men. And it is what a harbinger of things to come. Because what do we read right after that in chapter 3, verse 1? It's kind of a summary sentence here. It says, there was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. And David grew stronger and stronger while the house of Saul became weaker and weaker. You see God's kingdom again advancing despite opposition. Against all odds, David's kingdom, it's it's growing and it's expanding. Though David didn't pick the war and start the war, he is, we're seeing, he is winning the war. And yet we're going to find the opposition to God's kingdom is not not always just from the outside. That opposition is also going to take form and it's going to come from within, from within the own ranks. Because we read in chapter 3, verse 6, that is the war, is it's going to drag on, right? Abner makes himself strong in the house of Saul. And again, it's at this point that Ishbosheth, the king, accuses Abner uh, of an issue we'll look at in a minute. And then he accuses him, and so Abner decides to, def- uh, to defect. And Abner, uh, actually, we'll just, yeah, we'll take it right here. Um, he, he's, make, he's becoming strong in the house of Saul, chapter 3, verse 6. And it's right there, notice, that, that Ishbosheth accuses Abner of what? Of sleeping with his father's concubine. That's what he accuses him of. Uh, in verse 7. And just so you know, for Abner to take the deceased Saul's concubine is effectively saying, I'm claiming the right to rule. I'm claiming the right to be king. And Ishbosheth accuses him of this. But notice, Abner's got all the power, and Abner didn't say, I did it. I dare you to do something about it. It's not what Abner says. Abner instead, at this point, he's protesting his loyalty to Saul and to his house. And I think given the kind of response we get from Abner, the narrator is is suggesting that actually Abner's innocent of this charge. And if that's true, that would mean Ishbosheth, in all of his unfounded accusations, suggests that he has the same warped tendency to misperceive reality like his father Saul did. He's got that same tendency to misperceive reality. And not only that, like Saul, Ishbosheth right now is accused falsely his most loyal and capable soldier of treason. Right, we're seeing with Ishbosheth, like father Saul, so son. And it's at this point, Abner again, he defects. He's going to take all Israel with him. And of course, David leaps at that opportunity to settle by diplomacy what's been taking years to settle by war. And they negotiate terms, except when Joab hears of it, remember this, he's none too pleased. So jump forward to chapter 3, verse 23. Chapter 3, verse 23. So Joab has been out on a raid. He comes back, and the time he's been gone, they've negotiated this truce. Verse 23, when Joab and all the army that was with him came, it was told Joab, Abner, the son of Ner, came to the king, and he has let him go, and he has gone in peace. Then Joab went to the king and said, what have you done? Behold, Abner came to you. Why is it that you have sent him away so that he is gone? 
you know that Abner, the son of Ner, came to deceive you and to know you're going out and you're coming in and to know that all you are doing. All right, so notice when Joab gets this news that there's been sort of a truce, a peace negotiated in the land, he doesn't seem to care that now all the kingdom's going to be united. He doesn't seem to care now that war will be over. He doesn't seem to care that there are no more brothers lost, no more sons mourned, no more caskets returning to weeping widows, right? No more taps and no more 21-gun salutes. He doesn't seem to care all that's going to go away. No, what does he do? He berates David, claims it's all a ruse, claims it's some deception, which is deeply ironic because what's Joab about to do but go and deceive Abner, right? And that's what he does. So angry at David, without any of David's authority or counsel, it doesn't consult with him, he traps Abner, sends messengers, has Abner come back. Again, it's his own deception. And Abner's been lulled into complacency. His guard is down. Abner does not see what's about to happen. He doesn't see it coming. Why? Well, first, David has granted him immunity. Right? He's gone in peace. And second... Remember where they are. They're in Hebron. You can't have revenge killings in Hebron. He's in a safe sanctuary city. But driven in part by rage, by jealousy, by selfish ambition, Joab murders Abner in cold blood. And notice it is a calculated strike. For notice where he stabbed him. Verse 27. He stabbed him in the stomach. When Joab came out, verse 26, from David's presence, he sent messengers after Abner, and they brought him back from the cistern of Sirah. But David did not know about it. And when Abner returned to Hebron, Joab took him aside in the midst of the gate to speak with him privately. And there he struck him in the stomach so that he died for the blood of Asahel, his brother. In the stomach, just like Abner had killed Asahel. You see, it's a kind of lex talionis, right? It's a kind of eye for an eye. He is exacting justice and revenge. Joab was settling public battles with private vendettas. And once again, aren't we left scratching our heads? You know, I noted last week, sometimes it's hard to tell who are the good guys and who are the bad guys. Once again, we're wondering who are the good guys? Who are the bad guys? You know, what we're seeing is all of us are quite morally complicated people. It's often not that binary, that easy to tell. Now, David is horrified at what's happened. He publicly laments Abner's death in verse 33. He calls for a season of national mourning in verse 36. And what do we read as a consequence of that? Verse 36. And all the people took notice of it. And it pleased them. As everything the king did pleased all the people. So all the people and all Israel understood that day that it had not been the king's will to put to death Abner, the son of Ner. So what are we seeing? David's approval writing, friends, it's hovering at like 100%. Did you notice that? All the people, that all, all, all continued to be used. And even, not what we'd expect, not just all of Judah, but all of Israel. That would be like the people of Russia singing songs and wearing t-shirts with like Zelensky's face on them, right? It's not supposed to happen this way. And yet, what are we seeing? Despite opposition, whether it's 
from without or from within. Despite opposition, God's kingdom continues to advance in David. So let's just stop here and recognize for a moment. Opposition to God's kingdom, right, comes from without and it comes from within. And friend, isn't that still true today? Isn't that still true in the church? You know, culture continues to to really move forward at warp speed. And much of the language we even use today, whether it comes to gender or sexuality, wouldn't have been recognizable even a decade ago. As a nation, we're shifting on things like euthanasia. We're shifting on legalized drug use, not to mention the ongoing battles over abortion. The growing battles over the First Amendment and the right to freedom of speech and expression. So just this week, peaceful protesters at an abortion clinic were sentenced to 10 years in prison by the DOJ. Whereas scores of crisis pregnancy centers in recent years have been firebombed, And not only has nobody gone to jail, nobody's even been arrested. And friends, all that opposition, you keep reading of it, what happens? It can feel overwhelming. It can feel discouraging. And it can be frustrating because we're like, we didn't pick these battles. right? These battles were picked for us. We're not the ones shifting. Everything around us is shifting. And the message to us is yet clear. Get on board with the moral revolution or else. Of course, as Christians, we feel that opposition from the outside just as David did. But we can feel it from the inside too, can't we? When historic denominations that would have been like-minded in years past abandon the faith once for all delivered to the saints. When friends or church members walk away from Christ and maybe not only do that, but they turn against us in the process. Right, that outside-inside, that's a vicious one-two punch. But just notice again how God is able to turn all of that opposition into David's advantage. He turns it into David's advantage. It doesn't matter how the nations rage. It doesn't matter how the peoples plot in vain. In 2 Samuel 2-4, God's kingdom continues to press forward. It's not to say it isn't slow. It is slow at times. It's not to say there aren't setbacks. But there is no mistaking at this point where all this is headed. It doesn't matter, opposition within or without. God's kingdom is advancing, and God's king will soon reign on the throne. And Christian, is that not true for us? Do we not live in the midst of these very same chapters? You know, that's part of what's pictured at the beginning of chapter 3. God's kingdom continuing to advance despite opposition. Because what do we read in in the beginning of chapter 3? We read of six sons that are born to David. You know, if you step back and look at chapters 2 to 4, it actually forms one unit that includes chapter 1. And so if you would, just for a moment, think about structure. And the reason that matters is because in the Bible, structure conveys meaning. Structure conveys emphasis. And so notice chapter 1 and chapter 4, the beginning and the end, they're bracketed by what? with the stories of individuals who seek to please David the king by killing the king and then expecting a reward. So you got the Amalekite, remember him, back in chapter 1, and then we're going to have these sons of Rimon that we're going to get to in a second in chapter 4. But of course, that's just sort of here on the outside. And then like Russian dolls, you take them apart, you move one step inward, and what do we have? Well, you've got two laments 
you've got David lamenting Saul and Jonathan at the end of one, and then David lamenting Abner at the end of chapter three. And then even one step further in, what do you have? You've got this struggle between two houses, between David and Saul in chapter two, between Abner and Joab in chapter three. And at the center of all chapters one to four is what? Chapter three, verses two to five. There's no corresponding match. It's right there at the center. Look with me, chapter three, verse two. We read, and the sons and sons were born to David at Hebron. His firstborn was Amnon of Ahinoam of Jezreel, and his second, Kiliab of Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. The third, Absalom, the son of Makkah, the daughter of Talmai, king of Geshur. The fourth, Adonijah, the son of Haggath, and the fifth, Shephatiah. I don't even know how to pronounce some of these names. The son of Avital, and the sixth, Ithrim of Egla, David's wife. These were born to David in Hebron. So what are we seeing? What is the narrator communicating? David's house is growing stronger. It is growing stronger. And ask yourself, why is that? Why is David's house growing stronger? Is it because he's the better general? Is it because David's got a better PR team? Is it because he's got better tactics? You know, is the prenatal care just that much better down in Judah or something, right? Why all the sons? No, it's God. That's what's being communicated. God is at the center of this. God is the one who is showing favor to David with all of the descendants and sons. Six of them, in fact, as tokens of his favor. Because what? For unless the Lord builds the house, the laborers labor in vain. Notice again, David isn't seeking the kingdom. The kingdom keeps coming to him. What is he doing? Patiently, waiting, praying, trusting. And God is working through all of the details, all of the opposition from within and without. God is orchestrating that and all of that for David's own benefit. Because there is no opposition that will thwart the coming of God's kingdom. So God's kingdom begins humbly. Second, it advances steadily, right, despite opposition. And third and last lesson I want us to see. God's kingdom is established by mercy and justice. God's kingdom is established by mercy and justice. So look back with me to chapter 2. David's anointed, remember, king over Judah. Verse 4. And what's David's first act as king? Chapter 2, second half of verse 4. What do we read? Well, when they told David that it was the men of Jabesh-Gilead who buried Saul... David sent messengers to the men of Jabesh Gilead and said to them, May you be blessed by the Lord, because you have showed this loyalty to Saul your Lord and buried him. Now may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you, and I will do good to you because you have done this thing. Now therefore let your hands be strong and be valiant, for Saul your Lord is dead, and the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. Now, what's the number one rule when securing a kingdom, right? It's to purge every member of the old order. Isn't that what, like, Lenin and all the Bolsheviks did for the Romanov family, right? They killed the whole family, all the family members, any of the sympathizers, put them in prisons. Right? You can't have any loose ends. you got to clean it all up. That's how coups work, right? 
But David doesn't do that because this is no coup. This is no power play. David instead rewards their loyalty to Saul, and he in fact executes any who strike against him. So notice David responds exactly the opposite that we should expect. It's a picture of grace, isn't it? It's a picture of mercy, the kind of kingdom David would be establishing. Even how David David treated Abner. Who is Abner but the, the commander of the opposing army? And when he comes to David seeking a treaty, David does not make him grovel like a dog. No, he listens to him. And most likely, Joab is partially incensed, not just because this guy who killed his brother has now been made peace with David, but probably because in the process, David assured him he'd have some role, maybe some posh government job in the kingdom. I don't know. Nonetheless, David listens to him, probably offers him something in the kingdom. And then what does he do? He sends him away, chapter 3, verse 21, in peace. You're going to find that expression in peace three times in chapter 3. Again, what are we seeing? David displaying mercy. David displaying grace. And yet while he rules with mercy and grace, notice he also rules with justice. For how does he respond to the death of Abner? Well, not only does he grieve, but he curses Joab. Look at me, chapter 3, verse 28. When Joab has murdered Abner in cold blood and David hears of it, afterward, when David heard of it, he said, I and my kingdom are forever guiltless before the Lord of the blood of Abner, the son of Ner. May it fall upon the head of Joab and upon all his father's house. And may the house of Joab never be without one who has a discharge or who's leprous or who holds a spindle or who falls by the sword or who lacks bread. So Joab and Abishai, his brother, killed Abner because he had put their brother Asahel to death in the battle of Gibeon. So even though Joab is family, remember, he's David's nephew. David would not turn a blind eye to justice. Look down with me, chapter 3, verse 39. David says, and I was gentle today, though anointed king. These men, the sons of Zariah, referring to Joab and Abishai, are more severe than I. The Lord repay the evildoer according to his wickedness. Again, he's going to rule his kingdom with justice. And we see that even in the final scene, right? Abner's dead at this point. Ishbosheth is now wetting his pants right up there in northern Israel. There's a power vacuum all of a sudden. And who steps into that? These two opportunistic sons of Rimmon, right? And they functioned as kind of mercenaries for Ishbosheth. And what do they do? Look with me, chapter 4, verse 5. In this moment, what do they do? We read, now the sons of Rimmon, the Berethite, and Rechab and Bana set out, and about the heat of the day, they came to the house of Ishbosheth as he was taking his noonday rest. And they came in the midst of the house as if to get wheat, right? This is their kitchen run. And they stabbed him in the stomach. Then Rechab and Bana, his brother, escaped. And then this is what often happens in Hebrew narrative. It tells you what happened, and then it cycles back and tells you again in more detail what happened, right? Genesis 1, Genesis 2. Okay, so we we read they escaped, and then it sort of jumps back, gives us more information, verse 7. When they came into the house, as he lay on his bed in his bedroom, they struck him and put him to death and beheaded him, right? Three times dead, lest there be any confusion, right? Struck him, killed him, beheaded him. 
And then they took his head and went by the way of the Arabah all night. And they brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron. And they said to the king, don't miss this, here is the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy who sought your life. Now that's all true. The Lord has avenged my Lord the king this day on Saul and on his offspring. So what's happened? The head of state has now lost his head, right? Tragically. And just again, notice the parallels with Saul. That's not meant to be missed. Both Ishbosheth the son and Saul the father, both struck in the stomach, both of them beheaded, and both of their deaths are reported to David by people who think this will earn them a reward. Like father, like son. And notice they claim to do all of this with what? With the Lord's sanction. Here's Saul's head. You've got this grisly gift. And they claim to justify this action saying, the Lord, right? He has avenged my Lord the king this day. So they attribute this loathsome act to the Lord. But again, doesn't murder always seem more palatable when it's wrapped in pious language? Is that not what the religious leaders taught us in Jesus' own day? And yet David has them executed for their crime. He is ruling with justice. And friend, does that rule of mercy and rule of justice, does that remind you of anyone? Does it remind you, say, of Jesus? For wasn't it Jesus who showed mercy and grace to his enemies just like David? Wasn't it Jesus who was willing to feast and to dine with outcasts and sinners just as David does with Abner in chapter 3, verse 20? Wasn't it Jesus who, as we read earlier in Matthew 26, responded to violence with, put back your sword in its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father, and he will at once send me more than 12 legion of angels? And is that not like David, who never once, we read here, lifted his sword in vengeance? And though David, too, had all the power and divine right to seize the kingdom, he refused, like Jesus, to take the kingdom by force. And wasn't it Jesus who said, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am what? Gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. And is that not like David's own rule? Chapter 3, verse 39, where we're told that he's gentle among them, though also a king. Friends, David is pointing us to a better king. He is pointing us to God's everlasting king. He's pointing us to King Jesus, who doesn't merely deliver us from our physical enemies like David, those who can destroy the body, but rather those who can destroy both body and soul in hell. That's who David's pointing to. So my friend, where does, that, where does all of that leave you this morning? That's what I want you to be thinking about as, I, as we close. Where does all of this leave you? Because it's clear that the kingdom of this world, right, the kingdom of Saul, it's clear it's passing away. Make no mistake. Whereas the kingdom of God begins humbly like a mustard seed, it will nonetheless one day flourish and blossom and David's greater son will reign forever, right? That much is unmistakable. So again, I press you, where does that leave you? 
Where does it leave you? You know, it's hard not to notice how much of these chapters are taken up with Joab and with Abner. What do you have? Two strong men, two proud men, two skilled men, each in his own way seeking to establish their own kingdom. At one level, you could say Joab and Abner, they're nothing but opportunistic warlords, right? They're the same, you might say. And yet, despite the similarities, I think the narrator is helping us see they're actually not the same. And it's in the difference of these two men that I think we are left with hope. Because Abner seems to change. Abner seems to transform before our very eyes. In chapter 2, what is he? He's the kingmaker. He imposes Ishbosheth as king. He instigates all the hostilities. And yet, by the end of chapter 2, what is Abner doing? He's calling for a truce. Joab is the one who will have no mercy. And by chapter 3, verse 9, verse 18, what do we find Abner doing but quoting God's promises? He knows David is to be king. And instead of kicking against that, what does he do? He submits to it. He lays down his sword and Abner proposes peace. But while Abner proposes peace, Joab persists in war. Abner defects. Right? Abner changes from the wrong side to the right side. Whereas Joab has proved that the only side he was ever on was his own side. In the end, Abner is what? He is eulogized by David. Joab is what? He is cursed later to be executed. Joab persisted in self-rule. Abner submitted to God's rule. Abner is a picture of repentance. He's a picture of repentance. Now, not perfect repentance. I'm not going to suggest that his motives are always squeaky clean, right? But I think they're genuine. I think they're genuine. And it's right there that I think we find hope. You know, repentance did not give Abner a longer life. But notice what it did give him. It gave him the love and the approval of the true king. Because in their final moments together, what do we find David and Abner doing? Chapter 3, verse 20. Abner, the enemy, is invited to dine at the table of the king. That's the last thing they do together. And friends, is that not what the gospel holds out to us? Is it not what it beautifully presents to us? The promise that God's enemies can become God's children. That we can become his friends and one day we too can dine with Jesus. The same Jesus whose kingdom became humble. Who, it, it came humbly. It came like, what did we say, a mustard seed. That same kingdom that yet advanced steadily. It, it grew despite all opposition. And that same kingdom was marked by what? By justice and mercy. You could say David's kingdom was cross-shaped, right? For it's there on the cross that perfect justice and perfect mercy meet. Where Jesus died the sinner's death so that sinners might receive his everlasting life. Sinners who, like Abner, lay down their arms, repent, and trust God's anointed king. Because one day the kingdoms of this world will be crushed by the kingdom of Christ. 
And as we're seeing in 2 Samuel 2-4, whether or not you are finally a part of God's kingdom is dependent upon whether you rightfully submit to his king. Friend, have you done that? Let's pray.